Hey everyone, I'm Andrew, and you're listening to Small Efforts, a collaboration between Crit and Miss Grants. And hi, I'm Sean. Small Efforts is a show where we talk about cybersecurity, design, and the continuous small efforts it takes to build a business. Dude, happy March. Happy March. Happy March. It's March already. How's business? How you doing? How's your week? How's my week? It's been a week of of meetings. I had two days. The first two days, I didn't have too many meetings. Mm -hmm. And then right now, it's just like (laughs) the next three days are just back-to-back meetings. Also, I don't know if I told you this or talked about this on the podcast. I started volunteering with the high school robotics team. Oh, whoa. And it has just been like our lead mentor got COVID this week. And our first competition is this week. It's like tomorrow is like the first day of the first competition. And as of the end of the day, Saturday still didn't have a driving robot and only had a chassis built and like some wiring. And I spent all day just debugging stuff. I'm the only software engineer on the team. And so they were basically like, hey, cool, you know, electrical stuff too, right? And I was like, no. And they're like, ah, figure it out. (laughs) But but it's a high school competition? Yeah, it's a high school robotics competition. Yeah. So first robotics is this like high school robotics program. And then, oh, no, I, I yeah, did it I, for like two club meetings and I was like, this isn't for me. I don't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically a friend that I climb with is works at GM. A bunch of the mentors at GM volunteer with first teams and the place where they meet, it's like a Hispanic community center around the corner from mm-hmm. us. He is around the corner from us. So he texted me one day and was like, hey, do you have any interest in coming to this thing? And I was like, sure, I'll check it out. Maddie, my girlfriend, did robotics in high school. And so she's also technically a software engineer as well. So her role is a little bit more like project management Mm -hmm. and stuff. And she comes from a mechanical engineering background. So she's been much more helpful at pretty much everything Mm -hmm. to do with the robot than I am. But somehow they were like, Andrew, go figure out all the software and electrical stuff. And I was like, guys, I haven't written code in three years. (laughs) And I have never done anything electrical more than like rewiring an old sailboat. Mm -hmm. And they're like, sounds good to us. <laughs> so a bunch of meetings at work and then a bunch of meetings at night to get ready for the robotics competition. Nice. But I will say we got our robot driving last night. Nice. Hell yeah. Congrats. It is officially driving. It won't be able to do anything else for the competition. Mm-hmm. So we won't be able to score any mm-hmm. points, but we can play defense. Hell yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for the background because I was very confused how Andrew ended up at a high school. Robotics competition. <laughs> I was just curious. Like, no, like, like you know, I just thought like maybe it was like a friend, family, friend, or something. But yeah, dude, programming not robots. Just on high school students. I, listen, <laughs> listen. It's, I, I said we could scrap this podcast. So. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's cool. Robots are hard, and it's overwhelming. It is. Um, it is. Some of these kids are like pretty knowledgeable. Not as much on the programming side of things, but like mechanical stuff. Like some of them. Yeah. Like we've got one guy on our team who like, you know, works on like BMX bikes and stuff in his garage all the time. So he's like super comfortable with tools and stuff. And then girl Soleil, she like, and so she's super soft-spoken, super quiet, but like pretty good at anything, mechanical gears, stuff like that. Yeah. High school kids are talented. High school kids are crazy, crazy talented. They're super talented. And super hard to keep focused. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm hard to keep focused. Am I a high school kid? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's always interesting to see where those people end up. How's your February? That's pretty good. Since it's March. Good month, bad month? So, fine. <laughs> good and bad. So, the good, started work with a new client. That's going really well. Mm. Really excited about some of the stuff they're doing. They're based out of Brazil. Really, just mm. like the team, share a lot of values. And yeah. They've been really enjoyable to work with. So have a, a really good rapport there. The bad was we had one of the designers on our team who had to leave for health issues. Mm -hmm. So really hope that she gets better soon and wants to come back. But for the time being, she left the company. And so we've gone into hiring mode. So we're hiring a product designer right now. And man, even from a year ago, it has gotten a lot, a lot tougher mm -hmm. to hire product designers. Not sure if some of that is our positioning or, but I, I really, my instinct from what everyone else is saying and just from what we're experiencing is that it's, it's a tough market right now. What about it? Is it the, is it the shortage or, it, sorry, is it that not, a, there aren't enough skilled workers or is it that they're all snatched up by other places? Not sure. Oh, okay. Um, couldn't tell you. We just last year posted product design opening I think our salary offering was even less than it is now. We're still not top end, but like it, it was a sizable amount. Yeah. yeah, it was less than it was was now. And we got a strong base of, of pretty qualified applicants. And this time we've had to get a lot more manual in our outreach. So we've been trying Dribble search, like designer search feature and messaging some people directly on Dribble. And then Next week, we are bringing on a manual recruiter for the first time. So we found a recruiter that doesn't charge a percentage of the first year's salary. They charge just a, a flat hourly rate, but they also don't do everything a recruiter does. So they're primarily sourcing candidates for you and helping pass those candidates along, but you're responsible for interviewing, negotiating salaries and all of that. That's totally fine with us. We would do those things anyway. So yeah, we're working with... Or going to start working with the recruiter next week to do some manual sourcing on top of the stuff that mm -hmm. we've been doing internally. When you say like manual sourcing, mm -hmm. like, are they almost like headhunting, like a specific fix or a specific? Fit? I don't, uh -huh. I guess it depends on what you consider headhunting. Okay, um, that's right. In general, I think when I say sourcing, I just mean they are reaching out to people, to a large group of people and finding people who are interested in a new position or interested in your position specifically. And then they're passing those along as warm leads to us. Got it. Got it. Okay. Got it. How has, um, well, no, you, cause you blasted on Twitter, right? You say that you're looking for, mm -hmm. do you ever have inbound come in from Twitter? A little bit. Okay. Let me pull up our metrics right now. I find hiring metrics so fascinating. I guess I talked about this a little bit on the last pod when I pitched mm -hmm. you my, my <laughs> hiring, but we now have two more weeks of data. Nice. So our job post has been active for 23 days. It has gotten 1,700 views and 59 applicants. Sources, most of the traffic has come from Remote OK. Then direct, which probably just means we don't know what the source is. I think a good chunk of that came from a friend's newsletter. Mm -hmm. Then Twitter, then LinkedIn. That's for views. For applicants, it's Twitter is not even on here. So it doesn't look like we've gotten a single applicant from Twitter. We've gotten one applicant from LinkedIn. Interesting. It's possible, again, there's three direct applicants. So it's possible that 
someone saw us through Twitter and then later like went directly to the website and applied. Mm-hmm. But vast majority of applicants came from Remote OK, mm-hmm. followed by WeWork Remotely, and then followed by Dribble. Gotcha. And of the 59 applicants we've had so far, two haven't been sorted yet. Nine were marked as not a fit. 42 are outside the U.S., and so we can't consider them for this position right now because we're not set up to hire outside the U.S. at the moment. And then six are qualified, but qualified just means like, you know, they have some job experience and have a decent portfolio. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of six folks we may interview. Cool. Thanks. Well, good luck. Thanks. Here's a question for you. Is there any specific thing that you look for? Like, I don't know how much you want to share if there's like a secret sauce here, but like... No, I'm happy to share. Yeah, yeah. so I can talk about the things that we look for. And we're constantly reevaluating this as we learn about, especially about diversity and inclusion and like best hiring practices. So some things we don't look a whole lot at education Mm -hmm. background, haven't found that to be a great predictor. A lot of our best engineers, designers have, you know, made a career change at some point. So Mm -hmm. we actually really love hiring people who've made a career change, but it's not something we like directly look at. So we're primarily looking at quality of their application. We look at their resume just to see if they have had some professional experience. For this role, we're looking for ideally a senior designer. More realistically, we're probably going to end up hiring kind of a mid-level designer. And so really, we don't have like kind of a defined threshold of you have to have this number of years of experience. But most likely, if you have less than one or two years of experience, you're going to struggle in this role. So if you have a really good portfolio, a couple of the people in Qualified have really strong portfolios, but don't have really much professional experience at all. And so move them to Qualified, may talk to them, may sort of move on from there. That's kind of the basic bar in terms of background. Then in terms of application quality, what we're really looking for is, did you put effort in? And not like, I don't need multiple essays, but just something that shows that you are interested in this application, this opportunity, and this job. And then ideally, we would see some sort of mention of values to indicate that, okay, this person is is interested, you know, sort of share some of our values, maybe a good addition to our culture. And we try to be intentional about saying culture add, not culture fit, because the focus is growing and getting stronger, not, mm-hmm. you know, having a bunch of people who all think the same. You know, try to, if anything, it's more of a values fit than a culture right, fit. Right. And then, like, we have a couple of questions about design that just, again, go to show us, like, has this person thought about design? Mm-hmm. Do they have any sort of process? But then, really, kind of the biggest thing I look for at this point is portfolio. Mm-hmm. And so, to be admitted or a senior level designer, what I'm looking for in your portfolio is can I see some work that you know, shows that you've been thoughtful about UX, that you're not making obviously bad UX decisions. So I'm not going to not hire someone because they use a hamburger menu. But I, if I notice that someone uses sort of a, a hamburger menu and includes a menu label or something like that, I'm like, okay, that's someone who's thinking about UX, who who is thinking about how to make something as, as obvious and usable as possible. Or another UX example might be Accessibility is kind of visual and UX. Is there enough contrast in their work that everything is legible and visible? That's a simple accessibility check. 
Accessibility is another thing I love to hear people mention in their application because it's like, okay, that's something you care about. That's something you're thinking about. And then from a visual standpoint, it's I've been trying to articulate this with our admin who's been helping me do some of the outreach lately. And it's hard to articulate like yep. what a well-designed portfolio looks yep. like. But to me, what I come back to is strong design fundamentals, strong visual hierarchy, strong sense of balance, consistency of spacing, consistency of you know typography size and border radius and all of those things. Not reinventing the wheel. So I see a lot of first-time designers who kind of, it's clear they came into something and just like started designing from scratch and end up with a lot of elements that feel kind of unfinished, whereas they could pull from a UI kit or pull more closely mimic some existing UI that's out in the world and get something that feels a little bit more polished and feels more like what our clients would expect of us. And then that last bit is like that polish, that depth. So little things like adding subtle shadows or glow effects or subtle textures, not overdoing it, little bits of animation, these different things that give depth to a design so that it doesn't feel too flat. It doesn't feel too empty. It feels like people have put time and care into it. It feels a little bit more custom. It doesn't just feel like bootstrap. Those are some of the things that I look for. Nice. Yeah, I think teaching or like the polish is such an interesting. I never know how to articulate this to someone else besides like when I'm reviewing a portfolio. It's just like whether this looks like a school, like a university project, or this looks like, I don't want to say it's real portfolio. They're all real portfolio pieces, but like a professional. professional thank you. Yeah, there's they're just always like this like extra layer of polish that... I think we look for you can like smell it off of the portfolio in a way but yeah it's it's interesting i've been trying to pay attention to the products that i'm using mm -hmm. and identify what about them gives me that feel and so like right now we're using an application called riverside mm -hmm. and it doesn't have shadows it doesn't have much in the way of animation and so i asked myself okay what is it about this that makes it feel polished? And I think they use color really well. So there's, it's not just two or three colors. It's multiple shades of the same color to give you a visual hierarchy. So you'll have a card that'll have a circle on top of it. The circle's the lightest, the card's next lightest. And then like the background behind that is like darker. And so that like having multiple shades of the same color mm -hmm gives something some of that depth in the same way that using shadows or bevel effects or glow effects might, but in a more subtle way without overdoing it, because some of that other stuff that I just mentioned is really easy to overdo. They also use some subtle bits of color mm -hmm. to highlight active states and have a little bit of a gradient in an area where they're trying to have a little bit more whimsy and draw your attention. Yeah, it's tough to put into words what mm -hmm. that polish is, but I've been trying to pay attention and in our practice articulating it and try identifying what it is about the things I'm using that, that give it that feel of polish. Yeah, yeah. I think looking at Riverside, just to kind of add on to what you're saying, right? I think it's like one of the things that I've noticed is with product design that I've seen, it's like whether or not the designer started with a system and created it with a system in mind where like, okay, headings are always going to be like H1s are this size, H2s are this size, et cetera, et cetera. Or like, 
And I think mm-hmm. consistent, like it just creates a layer of consistency and rules around where things are used, right? Which is why they're like the different shades of gray are where they are. And then I think, mm-hmm. yeah, like I think all the things that you say are true. I think the extra thing that Riverside does is just like over communicating some aspects of like whether or not you're recording, right? There's like multiple places that tell you that it's recording and then like multiple places that tell you that it's uploaded or whatever. So it's just like any time you look on the screen in a lot of these information panels, it's telling you like what you need to know, which requires a lot of time and effort to like get right, I think. So, yeah. So you hire a lot of designers who are a little bit more graphic design focused mm-hmm. or branding focused. Mm-hmm. What are the things we've been talking about product? What are the things that you look for in a mm-hmm. graphic design portfolio or a branding portfolio? Yeah, yeah. So we also look at a lot of like web design portfolios because we hire mm-hmm. those. True. So that's where where like the like consistency and, and everything kind of come into. I think when it comes to brand, let's say logos, there is I think there's two aspects of this. One, usually it's kind of, one, it's just like overall, like are there mistakes in the logo? Like does this have an extra jagged edge that it shouldn't have a jagged edge or something like that? Like there is like a bit of care that you can tell when you look at logo design. And yet like, you know, is this visually centered? We've worked with like a really cool contractor in the past, in the very, very early days where like when he, it's also like presentation, right? So when he presented it, it was never with, like here's the logo on like a flat white background. It's like, here's the logo in context, but also like, this is why like preemptively guessing what I would say about the logo and going, this is why the text is up like three more pixels than it normally would. And it's because I want it to be optically centered or something like that, which is, and you could tell he was very senior because of all these things. Mm-hmm. Something that I kind of always want to see is the number of variations. I think, I was talking to Josh about this, but one of the things early on when we were just like talking about, okay, how do we like hire people and how do we determine, like how do we hire people, but also how do we like improve juniors and kind of guide them into being better? And it's just, it's the number of variations they go through and the amount of times they mm-hmm. continue to push it, even though like it's where you say stop. And I think the reason like a logo will look more polished or something will look more polished than the other is just that, they just kept pushing and kept refining to a point, right? Where I was about to say, would you agree that you kind of reach a point where you can over? Yeah, it? otherwise you just end up with a circle. You just like, or, <laughs> or like you end up with the triangle again after. Or the other direction, you end up with something that has too much embellishment, yeah. too much, yeah, yeah, too much extra. You've got a gradient inside of a uh-huh. <laughs> inside of a glow inside of a yeah zebra pattern. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I think there is like a rubric in terms of grading logo design, right? In terms of usability, consistency, ownability is a big one, right? Like how are you making a logo that, and then also like, I think it's like the philosophy at which you take or you approach making a logo. But like, I think a logo is a very small part of all the things that you have to consider if you're presenting a brand in a portfolio, right? It's overall like whatever the tone you want to set and all these things. But anyway, the things that I look for, there is like that factor, which I've not been able to articulate, which is also why I think I do all the hiring right now. The other things I think I look for, I think it's just like process and thinking behind it. Sometimes it just is worth using the portfolio as a talking piece and pointing at like, why did you choose to do this and hearing their explanation? And I think it's more about, did they think about what they were doing or was it just like a gut feeling because gut feelings are not reliably repeatable. Whereas intention and everything is and yeah 
I think. Process is a big one mm -hmm. that we've been trying to identify because process hopefully helps you make those results more repeatable, mm -hmm. like you said, and just makes the whole experience feel more organized, which is better mm -hmm. for the team and the client. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think process is important. Yeah. One of the things we're still trying to get better at, though, is hiring marketers. Because mm. that's, like, admittedly, like, the marketers that do work with us are just, like, through referrals and, and talking to them and, and, like, crossing my fingers and going, okay, like, I hope, you know, it works out. And, and you know, we do risk this by, like, working with them on smaller projects or non-client projects to kind of get a sense of how they work. And then we work together in a client project or something. Like, I think that's what we'll do with a lot of our hires early on just as like an like there'll be like an onboarding project that we work on together i think we can do that because we're small but it's not something that's super scalable and not something that's great to do all the time so still trying to figure out how to hire good marketers i think it's a hard problem to solve yeah when you think about setting salaries and hiring is all of your team u.s based for right now yeah yeah have you thought about going international I have. Yeah, I have. I think we have occasionally worked with international, just mainly through Upwork, which has made that process easier mm -hmm. and on like the topic of setting salaries. Have you thought about hiring internationally? I've thought about it. It's not a priority and it's not something we've thought of, like thought about a lot, but there is a lot of talent overseas that are just like just I, some of the most talented designers I've worked with have been overseas. You know, not to say they aren't in the US, it's just by chance, like, I don't want to exclude them from the conversation. So, yeah, I feel, I feel very much that same way. One, we've started to have some international clients. We have a client in Brazil right mm -hmm. now. We have had a client last year in Israel. And so I sometimes think about how cool it would be if we already had a designer who spoke Portuguese when we started working with this Brazilian client, mm -hmm. or I've thought before about how, if you built a distributed team that was large enough. You could work around the clock. We don't do a whole lot of engineering support, but yeah, you could provide around the clock support without anyone having mm -hmm. to work miserable hours. Mm -hmm. And then the larger thing is exactly what you just said, which is just that there are really talented people who are not in the US and given the nature of the work we do and the fact that we're already remote, we're already distributed, it feels kind of silly not to hire them just because they're not in the US. Mm -hmm. We have hired one person outside the US before who was in Canada. And she was a contractor the entire time she was working with us. But she was like a contractor who was basically on a full-time contract. And so it created this slightly weird dichotomy of like, mm -hmm. she would request time off. And I was like, you don't have to request time off. You're a contractor, but everyone else has to request time off. And so as long as it's not a large part of the, your team, it just makes that person, I think, feel a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And I don't like that from like a culture standpoint. I want everyone to feel like they're treated similarly, treated fairly. Fair. So there's that part that's a little weird, but then hiring full-time overseas can get expensive and like there's the compliance stuff just intimidates me to be honest. Yeah. But yeah, there are really talented people. And then, yeah, there's the salary question too of like, do you pay the same salary regardless of where someone lives or do you adjust your salary depending on the market? How do you think about that? The logo contractor that I was talking about earlier was mm -hmm. an overseas contractor very, very early on that we were working with him on a couple things, but I think the rate that we paid him made him a very, very rich person. I was thinking about this the other day. If you pay the same salary, no matter where someone lives, does it incentivize people to live in cheaper places? And like, I think that I see both sides and I think that I haven't had enough opportunity to think about it as much. 
I think that when we have paid overseas contractors, it's always been like with a slightly more U.S. salary bias. So it's always been in a way that we're overpaying. But admittedly, even on our side, like we're sorry, we're overpaying based on their cost of living. But admittedly, on our side, like it's still like, frankly, it's still cheaper. Right. And I think that's why a lot of people use overseas contractors. So because we are still either, you know, paying a fair amount for the work or parent paying a slightly less, like the margin on our side has been good enough where it just hasn't been a factor of consideration. That being said, we don't do it very often. Like no one that we use is overseas now. It was just when I was a team of one <laughs> a year ago. So yeah, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, it's something I've struggled with. Our official policy right now is we just pay everyone the same base regardless of where you live. Mm -hmm. So our salaries are probably not super competitive if you're in San Francisco, if you're in Mattoon, Illinois, where we had an employee last year, you mm -hmm. know, it is a more competitive salary. But again, with everyone going remote, it starts to bring up these questions again of like, are do you always have to be competing with San Francisco? So we pay everyone regardless of where they live. And to me, I think that's what feels right to do internationally as well. But I guess what's where I think that logic starts to break down is we don't pay engineers and designers exactly the same. Like we are basing those salaries off of market rates. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, keep going. <laughs> I mean, we pay pretty close. Actually, our senior designer and our engineer might make the same. Um, yeah, yeah. But our senior engineer and our senior designers might make the same. It's very close, but, and maybe we, yeah, we need to change that. But regardless of whether it's engineers or designers, which is a little bit more controversial, still most, no company is that I know of is going to pay an office manager or an admin the same as they're going to pay an engineer because the market for those two roles is very different. And so it's like, it feels a little strange to me that I'm okay with accepting the market rates in that sense, but not okay with accepting the market rates across international borders, the differences between market rates across international borders. But I think it feels like there's more inequity at play when you're looking across international borders, like, mm -hmm. and taking advantage of that feels scummy to me, mm -hmm. even though you could argue that there might be some level of inequity in play between whether someone ends up becoming an engineer or an office manager. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I struggle with this question because the reality is no business is like all businesses are paying some sort of market rate. Mm -hmm. And so why is it scummy to pay rates within the context of one market, but not scummy to pay rates within the context of another market? Yeah. But I think it just comes back to feeling like there's a lot of both racial and mm -hmm. like colonial inequity mm -hmm. in play like there's like reasons that parts of the world are have a much lower cost of living and like if you follow it far enough it's like yeah it's a low cost of living because there are a lot of people in that area of the world who don't have what the west would consider you know a reasonable standard of living and so it feels weird to support that but i don't know does that feel like kind of gross and patriarchal or something of me to say 
I don't know. So before I get into that, for the record, Crit pays extremely fairly. Crit pays very competitively. <laughs> like I know, I know the way Andrew's making it sound. Crit's compensation model is public, and it is an extremely, I would even say, competitive amount. It's not Fang level competitive, and that's to be expected. And like, you should go work for a Fang if you want that salary, and that, and do all those, you know, five, six, thirteen step interviews, and do all that stuff, and whatever. <laughs> but for what it's worth, I think your senior designer and engineers are incredibly well compensated and we have the luxury of not having to hire an engineering team so i get to say <laughs> boo because we have almost all designers right so okay going back to the conversation about what is essentially like arbitrage so i have a question for you mm -hmm. like you can compensate people that work for you at what is a fair market rate and at, a, at mm -hmm. a rate that they are extremely happy with, which I assume everyone at Crit is extremely happy with their rate, or if not, they're satisfied and they're content with their rate, right? Yeah. And no one has like a free ping pong table or like, you know, like whatever perks that <laughs> Apple and stuff do, do. But regardless, like, like there's an extent where, and for the record, like also with your benefits package, right? It, like all these things are like very satisfactory. I guess the question is like, at what is the stopping point and where does over-investing in employee happiness like start becoming a transfer of wealth for like from growing your business because like at the end of the day like your margins do matter and like like i would love to mm -hmm. like i would love to pay people triple their salary if i could but like Same. i'm gonna go broke just, I, we won't yeah. survive <laughs> for us like two weeks at this point so i guess that's the question yeah and to some degree i think there's a baseline where if you can't pay people a fair wage you don't deserve to be in business. Like mm -hmm. you need to find a better business that is more valuable and can provide a mm -hmm. fair wage to everyone working at that business. I, yeah, so I, I mean, I have thought about that a lot. I think there's a lot of people out there who want to ignore growth for the business. Mm -hmm. So there's profitability just to like survive, mm -hmm. right? A company needs to be profitable because you never know what's coming next. Profitability is your safety net. It is how you make sure that like if business slows down, if something changes, if someone leaves, the business can continue to survive. We also share our profits with the team. So I feel an obligation to try to make profits so that we can make good on that promise to share some of our profits right. with our team. And I you know, do feel a personal obligation and an obligation to my partner to like make sure we feel fairly compensated for the stress and risk and responsibility that comes with owning, operating, and running a business. There are some people who, though, would say that, like, as long as you're sort of profitable, you don't need to grow. I don't think that's true either, because I think that creates an environment where most people are going to be unhappy. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think you're actually doing your employees a favor by not growing, because mm -hmm. most people want to feel like they're growing and their life is getting better and they're improving in some way. Mm -hmm. Not everybody. There are probably people who are more happy with the status quo and with sort of staying where they are. But most people want to feel like they're growing. And this is a fundamental challenge of like capitalism in general, right? It's like, how do you create a sustainable system that also relies on growth? Because it's hard to continue growing all the time. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting a little sidetracked here. <laughs> no, I think that's fair. Uh -huh. But I guess what I'm the point I'm trying to make is that I do feel a responsibility to provide the best quality of life possible to my employees. 
I also feel a responsibility to make sure I can do that profitably and sustainably. And as long as I can do that profitably and sustainably, and it is a very fair wage, I feel like probably I'm doing doing what I can and the business is valuable enough that I should continue building it and growing it. And I feel like growth is a part of giving employees the best quality of life. I think there needs to be a certain amount of growth for them to feel like they're a part of something meaningful mm -hmm. and worthwhile and valuable. So you keep saying fair wage, right? Mm. But like, what is the context of fair in this case? Because like, frankly, there is like overly fair, right? Like fair wage to me means adjusted to cost of living, where if they live in like Thailand, for example, where a lot of nomads go, a fair wage is very, very different. And and I'm not saying- But I'm again, done. I think you've got to ask like why the cost of living is so much lower there. And is the cost of living lower there because everyone in the country has, mm -hmm. I mean, not that everyone in America has a great quality of living or right. there are certainly places in America that have plenty of poverty and, you know, our healthcare system is fucked up. So I'm not trying to act like, oh, everyone needs to be like the U.S. But are you, by taking advantage of a lower cost of living, are you indirectly taking advantage of a subset of people who are being paid unfairly, even if they're not being paid by you, mm -hmm. like downstream effects, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. And are you ignoring the value that that person provides to your company? And like, how do you encapsulate the value that person provides to your company? And if you're like, if the difference is kind of massive between what they're earning and what value they're providing, that is both room for a good margin that can make the business owner wealthy and maybe margin that can make the rest of the team quality of life better mm -hmm. but it's also there's a point where that that gap becomes so large that it does start to feel unfair for sure yeah i mean i think like a good example of this is literally how much like microsoft would pay seattle engineers versus like their mexico office right it's like worlds yeah. of a difference i don't know i think i agree with you by the way like it's just like i wonder how many factors i don't know enough to consider about right like <laughs> which is also why i think like this i think the easiest answer has always just been like yeah like you're doing what is effectively i don't have to go from let's say 30 percent margin to like going to and like now making 70 percent margin because i'm only using overseas contractors and and doing this stuff like i can i'm happy at a specific percentage fundamentally is that like good business like I don't think so. Fundamentally, should I be pushing for more margins where if I'm able to produce? But what is what is good business? Like what is the definition of good business? Is good as much margin as possible? I understand that I might not do it, but I also wonder how many people already do it and how much of my like personal ego into being a business owner would play into me choosing not to do it. There's millions of design agencies in the US and I'm more than positive, like over 60% or 80% of them, like cheat their employees in a way, right? I think I had, we just hired a motion designer, like a senior motion designer. We're heavily investing into motion and everything. And like, he and I were just talking and he was like, wow, like I, this is now gonna be a, a, a ego boost for myself on this podcast. But he was like, wow, he was like, wow, I love how much, how well you're treating everyone here with what you're doing and with the new benefits and everything. And like, he's like, yeah, most agencies, regardless of 
laws just keep everyone at a 1099 day rate and like really, really protect this margin and also use a bunch of overseas contractors. Like they don't provide these things. I don't know where I was going with that besides just the ramble. (laughs) Well, so you were asking like what good business is and like should, is that technically better business? One, I think that Mm. it might be better short-term business, but my my genuine belief is that like long-term treating your employees right will have effects, compound effects down the road. And I'm willing to invest in those and like delay that. So one, I believe that pretty strongly. Mm -hmm. Two, I think the essence of what we're arguing about here and and not arguing, but what we're discussing and trying to think through just boils down to like, how much do you believe in the power of free markets? Like, Mm -hmm. do you believe that free markets create the best outcomes for everybody? And that it's a more efficient system of calculating what a fair wage is to just let the market decide rather than letting one individual in Detroit, Michigan Mm -hmm. decide. If you believe strongly in free markets, then maybe you should just pay the market rate and let the collective of the market decide what is fair. And that will change over time and you will adapt with it and grow with it. Mm -hmm. I'm personally of the belief that like markets are a valuable tool, but they are just one input mm-hmm. and in most cases they are not truly free and they are like you know the circumstances are stacked in favor of the already rich and powerful mm-hmm. and so i don't think the market is actually the the answer in all situations yeah no i 100 I, I think free markets are 100 free if information is equitable across the board but it's not right i think okay mm-hmm. so this is it's not that like i'm talking about like cheating your employees especially if they're overseas or anything but like i guess the, the question here is let's say that an incredibly good salary like a henry level salary which which i just learned this acronym have you heard of a henry high earning not mm-hmm. rich yet <laughs> which is your average tech worker like your gifted child average tech worker <laughs> it's your gifted and talented kid it's your gnt turned henry but anyway like a henry salary here, which is a FANG salary, is like 200K total compensation right out of college, right? Which puts them in a very high, like wealthy amount of money. And let's say this is, let's just pretend this is like upper middle class in New York, right? Or on the track to be upper middle class. Now, let's say in, let's say in Mexico, I don't know, by the way, I before I get completely canceled, I don't know the stats here at, in Mexico, what the cost of living here there is. So I'm just going to guess, like, let's say that a high earning, like a similar Henry in Mexico would make a total compensation of $80,000, for example. So I'm not saying that you pay them like a shit salary just because they're in Mexico, but you pay them what is, what puts them in the same relative tax bracket like is that cheating them or is it just like but i think it still goes back to why is the cost of living so much lower in mexico for sure but what are you gonna like like, how do you change that by yourself (laughs) like and that's too where i get kind of hung up because if like mm -hmm. part of the reason we haven't hired international talent right now is because we don't want to pay cheaper rates so we want to pay the same rate we're paying now but if we are going to pay the same rate to American employees and international employees. And we're going to hire people full time so that we can provide benefits and stay compliant and everything. Then we have to, we likely have to go through a GEO, a global employer organization. Mm. And that's going to increase the cost of anyone international. Mm. And so it's not worth it to us. It doesn't make sense Mm. to hire someone internationally. And so I'm like, is it, 
am, by just not hiring internationally, am I doing anything? Am I really being like more ethical or mm -hmm. maybe I'm actually restricting the flow of capital from one country to the mm -hmm. other? Mm -hmm. I think where I land is again, just I should pay everyone about the same, ideally the same, I think for us, because we're transparent, because we have mm -hmm. things structured the way we, we are. I think if we go international, we pay people the same and we sort of accept that it's not a perfect answer because in a sense, if we pay people the same, we're still playing arbitrage a little bit. We're still saying it's tough for us to attract enough talent in the U S without paying FANG salaries. But if we go international paying very good U S salaries, but not FANG salaries, we can't attract good talent. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, we're still playing that arbitrage a little bit, just at a, at a higher mm -hmm. level and at a, level that is maybe fair to everyone who is an employee of us but could still be argued to be unfair at a larger scale okay i'm gonna i'm gonna throw a wrench in this okay <laughs> let's say you pay juniors junior designers here seventy thousand sixty five thousand right yeah right now I okay think. and i think that's for the responsibilities that i remember reading that's an incredibly fair and competitive rate so my question to you is, in the U.S. you pay that much, and then you go overseas to, I don't know, Serbia. Also, for the record, I just looked at our numbers, and we do pay senior engineers the same as senior product designers nice. and junior product designers the same as junior engineers. I think we just have like a couple of extra steps in between gotcha. for engineers and only one step in between for designers. Nice. Just for the record. Hell the yeah. Record. Hell. <laughs> yeah, we'll do a flashback moment. We'll add a little sound effect. We'll do a flashback moment. Anyway, <laughs> sometimes I wish we had a video podcast so we could do things like that. But anyway, so to kind of like, I want you to answer this with like your gut reaction and you as a business owner and what you would do, right? Like you pay a junior 65K and then let's say you go to Serbia, for example. Again, I don't know the cost of living. So if anyone, if I'm wrong with these stats, like please, by all means, like, like, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry, but I'm just coming up with like random places that are not in the US. But, and you're looking to hire a junior designer but you pay 65 and someone who is senior, like, because you make your pay transparent, like a senior is like, I want this position. I think I would do great in this position. Like, here's the question. If you have two seniors of, if you have two designers of completely different skill levels applying, like, and like someone who is amazingly talented, let's say in Austin, but in Serbia is amazingly talented. And he's like, I'll work for $65,000. Well, like, what do you do? I'll tell you. And I've actually had this happen. Mm -hmm. I have had been in this scenario and maybe I'm wrong. You can tell me if mm -hmm. I'm wrong. I would reject the more skilled person. Mm -hmm. So I had someone who I knew personally who was looking to make a change from freelancing to full-time. Mm -hmm. We posted a junior designer position mm -hmm. and this person was clearly a senior designer mm -hmm. and reached out and said, Hey, I don't really care how much I make. I just really like what y'all are doing. Would like to work with you. I'm happy to make the junior designer salary and then we can figure it out later. Like, what do you think? Like this person is, is awesome, super talented, probably would have been lucky to have them on the team. But I told them, Hey, I'm sorry. I think we're really looking for a junior right now. I'm super excited that you're interested in this, but I would love to talk to you if we open a, a more senior position down the road. And the reason is one, it, it seemed fair. It seems like the right thing to do. Maybe I'm wrong on that. My suspicion is that while that might, they might be okay with that for a time. Again, we have transparent salaries, like over time, I don't imagine they're going to be happy continuing to be paid like a junior. So I feel like when you do something that is kind of unfair or unequal, it plants seeds that could be bad for our culture. Mm 
And I, it wasn't worth the risk of doing that to me. And I think it would also send a message to our team that like, we're sort of corroding our values, that we're not standing up to the values that we have set forth, which again, impacts the culture for the rest of the team and how they view our word and what we say we stand for. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think, again, I don't know that it's the right answer, mm-hmm. but what feels right to me is to say, I'm sorry, we really, we're looking for a junior right now. So we want to hire a junior, would love to file your information. And like, maybe we can even create a, a senior position for me, for you. But right now we're looking for a, a junior. Maybe this is, okay. I mean, you're consistent. I'll give you that much. <laughs> like, like maybe this is just purely the fact that like we've, we've been in business for very different numbers of years. Right. And I think, I don't know. I like, I would find it very hard to turn that senior down mm-hmm. and not because of the fact that like, I would feel like I'm paying him a junior salary. And like, if this person, if I knew that this person was taking on the salary because it was incredibly fair to him, not that he was taking it at a loss of like, mm-hmm. I, I think it is a little bit of a different scenario because in theory, the person who was here in the U S who applied for us, like kind of knew that they were taking a hit to get their foot in the door or whatever. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So it is a little bit of a different scenario there. So that, that has maybe a stronger potential to seed resentment or fair or something. That's so yeah. Yeah. In it, in a situation like what you were originally describing, maybe there is less of that feeling, Mm -hmm. but so we're still going to have transparent salaries and that person is still going to, in my mind, that person is still going to feel at some level, like the company values them less than someone who is doing the same amount of work. Mm -hmm. Maybe. And the same quality of work. Maybe. I think, I don't know. Here's an mm-hmm. even more fucked up example okay. where this starts mm-hmm. to, where like paying based on the local market starts to really break down. Uh-huh. I have a friend who was just hanging out with us this past weekend who's Canadian. She currently works for eBay. Her visa may expire this year and she may have to move back to Canada. Mm-hmm. She would still be able to keep her job at eBay, but eBay pays based on local market yep. rates. So if she moves back to Canada, her pay would be cut nearly in half. Mm -hmm. But the cost of living in Canada isn't actually that much lower. But the market rate is for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And so she would be moving to a place with a similar cost of living Mm -hmm. and getting half the pay because the market rate hasn't caught up to the cost of living. Oof. Yeah, that's... I don't know what to say about that besides like fuck like that's that's terrible that's awful it's like worst of both yeah, worlds. Yeah. that's literally yeah the reason i bring up this microsoft thing is because i had a friend coming out of college and he was supposed to have a visa work visa issued to, for him to work here Microsoft. i don't know i don't know if i'm allowed to, i don't know whatever like like the fan company just forgot to do the the work visa so he had to go back to mexico and he was and like he had already like put a lease down for everything in Seattle and uh, they were like, yeah, we're going to pay you local market rates, which is not enough to even cover his apartment rent in Seattle. Right. And, and like that, that made things very hard. If you're an agency and you're charging for time and materials, you were kind of in a way playing salary arbitrage, mm-hmm. no matter yep. what, like you were hiring people and you were charging it more than you were paying them. And that's the only way you keep the business mm-hmm. running. But you're also providing benefits, you're providing more stability, you're, mm-hmm. it's an exchange of value that hopefully is relatively fair. But yeah, early on, like we tried to pitch some sort of San Francisco companies and we were like, we're all living in Charleston, South Carolina. We don't need to make 
San Francisco salaries, we're happy making our Charleston, South Carolina salaries. So maybe we can actually undercut, mm. not necessarily charge the same as the San Francisco agency, but undercut the San Francisco agency and do work that's just as good. And again, that's kind of what maybe some freelancers are, are doing as well. And maybe they're happy with it. Is it my right to tell them, no, you need to charge more? Mm-hmm. But I think it just goes back to like power dynamics for me. Like, do I feel like someone is exploiting the power dynamics to like profit off of people who are more vulnerable than they are? If so, that feels pretty shitty. Mm-hmm. If it's like a pretty fair, if the people are on pretty equal playing fields and, you know, everyone kind of understands what's happening and mm-hmm. then it becomes murkier. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I mean, it's not like we're gonna solve. You and I are gonna solve like cost of living, solve global salary. inequality yeah, in yeah, yeah. <laughs> thirty minutes in an hour, and how to do international business yeah, yeah. in the fairest possible way. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Not this episode, no. but in two episodes. <laughs> Tune in. <laughs> Tune in for round for episode two, where we solve everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That should just be the podcast name. Sean and Andrew solve. Everything. Andrew and Sean solve everything. Andrew and Sean yeah. save the world. Ask TW. <laughs> For me, it's not about trying to solve it so much as it's trying to just think through the whole situation yeah. from, you know, yeah. all sides and just come up with the solution that feels the most fair for me. And yeah. for now, that still feels like paying the same salary regardless of where someone lives. Mm-hmm. At the moment, we aren't hiring internationally because of the added expense and just challenges mm-hmm. and compliance risks. But... I think that may change in the near term. I think we are reaching a point where it's starting to make more and more sense to me to try to go international. And I think if we do, at least for now, we will just pay the same rates regardless of where people are. Mm. And, you know, one of our U.S.-based team members wants to move to a lower cost of living area and they're comfortable with the trade-offs there. Okay. That's fair. We are not hiring internationally anytime soon because, (laughs) yeah. Well, maybe. I don't know. It's, It's actually likely. We'll see. I don't know. We'll figure it out. <laughs> Who knows? Cool. Well, anything else on your mind? Oh, you were about to wrap up. I was going to wrap up. I, I, was gonna, I do have a hard stop, but nothing else on my mind. I don't completely agree with you, but I also see where you're coming from. I also don't <laughs> exactly know what I would do because I've never put actually put myself in those situations in, enough to think about it. Yeah. In any case, I will see you next time. All right. All right. Catch you later. Thanks. Bye. You just listened to Small Efforts, a podcast collaboration between Crit and Miscreants, hosted by Sean Sun and Andrew Askins. Sean is a hacker turned designer and the founder of Miscreants, a creative agency building memorable brand and product experiences for cybersecurity ventures. Andrew is an engineer turned CEO and the founder of Crit, a product design agency that helps cybersecurity founders create better products. If you enjoyed this podcast, rate us on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. You can check us out at smalleffortspod.com. Thanks for listening. See you next episode.